You're listening to audio from Valley Christian Fellowship. If you'd like to check out more resources or even connect with us, go to www.vcflongview.org. All right, church, uh, to honor the reading of God's word, will you please remain standing? This is Isaiah chapter 10, starting on verse 33. It says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in heights will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Go ahead and have a seat. I, uh, if you are joining us for the first time today, I just want to let you know that Pastor Mike, our, our senior pastor, who was on vacation this week, apparently enjoying breezy Arizona, uh, he, he has started a series called God With Us, where we are taking a moment to examine Every title given to Jesus through the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Several weeks ago when he started, he started with the word Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that is the celebration of Christmas, right? That we are celebrating that Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, has entered into human history to be with us, to live among us, and ultimately to die for us and then prove that he can overcome sin by overcoming death. Well, Pastor Mike continued on, and we looked at, O wisdom from on high, and how Christ is the supernatural wisdom that we need, especially the wisdom that we need to navigate this, this world that seems so intelligent and yet so not very wise. And just last week, we looked at the Lord of might. We looked at how mighty, how powerful our God is. Today, it is, my, it is my privilege and my joy to be able to share with you the title, The Rod of Jesse. And the Rod of Jesse, ultimately what this is going to teach us is, is that Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope. And I know some of you are looking at your notes right now and you see a blank page. That's my bad with a lot of things happening this holiday season. I did not finish the sermon until like Friday, which is when the office is like, nope, we can't print anymore. So, sorry. But you, you will see the points of the message as we, continue, as we continue on. But before we go on any further, let us take a moment to calm our hearts, to open ourselves up to what the Lord has for us through prayer. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for the series that we are in, Lord, and I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are a God who reveals himself, his character, his ways, and you reveal to us who we are. Father, I pray today that as we look at your word, you will be glorified. Father, speak to our hearts, draw us closer to you, and Lord, as we look at the idea that you are our hope, Father, I pray that you would encourage and renew us. 
In your name I pray. Amen. So today, we are looking at the rod of Jesse. We're looking at the idea that Christ is our hope. And before we go on any further, I, let's just take a moment to define what hope is. And if you were to look at any Bible dictionary, most commonly what you will see is that hope is defined as the ability to look forward to an eager expectation. It seems very clinical. But it's the idea that you have something to look forward to, that there is something in your life that you desire, something good, something great, and you are looking forward to that entering into your life. That is what hope is. It's this idea that things can get better, that you expect things to be better. And I am excited to speak about hope because we live in a jaded world. I don't know about you, but now that I've reached the ripe old age of 34, I've seen a few things. <laughs> but isn't it true? I, it just, this, this just seems like observation. But it seems like when you're in high school, you start to develop your worldview. You, you start to expect, you start to develop what you think the world should be. You, think to, you start to expect, oh, this is how the world works. And then in your 20s, you're released you're into the world, and you experience things, and you start to realize, oh, that is not at all the way the world works. And if you face enough discouragement in your life, if you had to make a lot of adjustments, by the time you get to 30, it's very common for people to start losing hope. It's very common for people to start lowering their expectations about life. It's very common for people, honestly, to live very negatively, to live pessimistically, to live jadedly. Friends, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, that is not meant to be our fate. But I'm excited to talk about this because e even now we are in the Christmas season. And in the Christmas and the holiday season, we typically have great expectations as to what Christmas should be. Maybe you have these great ideas of how family should be, that these gatherings you're going to have or these gifts you're going to get or the people you're going to connect with. You have all these expectations and oftentimes during the holiday season, our expectations are not met. Or maybe you're in the same boat that I was in when I was much younger. I remember when I was 15, my parents divorced and things kind of imploded. And for several years after that divorce, every holiday, every birthday, every anniversary, any, anything significant that happened in our family's lives was just a reminder that there was something broken in my life. I want you to know, as a church, we see you. If you are someone who's going through a holiday season and there's, it seems a little dark and it seems like life isn't the way it should be, if you are hurt right now, I want you to know that we serve a God of hope and this is not how your story is meant to end. Today, we are looking here at Christ, our hope. And let's just look at it again. At Isaiah chapter 10, starting in verse 33, it says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts, 
He will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. If you're paying attention, you're looking at that that passage of scripture and you're like, Andrew, where is hope in that passage? And you will be right to think so. We are in the book of Isaiah and if we are going to see the hope that Christ the Messiah brought to the ancient audience of this passage, we need to understand the entire context of this passage. So let's just do a flyby real quick of the book of Isaiah, because if you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah, things are about to get heavy real fast. The book of Isaiah, in many ways, is a scathing indictment of the people of God. In Isaiah chapter 1, Chapter 1, it starts with this in, in verse 2. Because verse 1 is like, oh, I'm, I'm Isaiah and I'm going to say some stuff. Verse 2 says this. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Just a reminder, that is just the first four verses of Isaiah. (laughs) The first five chapters in the book of Isaiah is God showing up and letting the nation know, hey Israel, you done messed up. You are a people who are set aside for my pleasure, for my goodness, to prove to the world what it would be like if you followed the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And yet, you are a people who call upon me, who use my name, but live just like the rest of the world around you. Israel has adopted the customs, the cultures, the values, and the practices of heathen nations around them and yet still identify themselves as the people of God. They practice empty religion. They show up to the temple. They kill a couple goats on an altar. They do all these things that they're called to do, and yet their hearts are far from God. God sees this. So what does he do? Well, he answers. In the same chapter, Starting in verse 24, God says, Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. 
I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. God has brought an indictment to Israel. God has said, Israel, you are the furthest from me. But God doesn't wash his hands of Israel. He doesn't give up on them. Instead, he responds with his might and power and says, I will purify you. I will teach you. I will discipline you in love how good he really is. And we see that God does this because we learn he is faithful. You see, the point here that we should see is that Christ is our hope. Right? God is our hope because he is faithful. And we know this because the, only, the reason why God continues to judge Israel, the reason why God starts to enact a plan to purify Israel is because he has made promises to the covenant people. He has made promises to Abraham and he has made promises to David. We know that in the past, before all this happened, that God promised Abraham that he would create a powerful nation, a nation of himself, that that would come through the line of Abraham. And yet, God is not going to let a nation that's supposed to be his be sinful. He's going to continue this nation. He says, because he is faithful, he will enact discipline and punishment. And beyond that, he continues to keep his promise to David who comes out of Abraham's country, his, his kinsmen, his people. And David, God specifically promised that he would bring and establish an eternal kingdom through his bloodline. God, because he is faithful, he acts. We can have hope in God. Because when we are rebellious, even though we claim him to be our God, God, because he is faithful to us, will in fact intervene in our life, not because of who we are, but because of the God, because of who he is. And he is faithful. He is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his word. But here's the scary thing, that his faithfulness, his faithfulness looks pretty negative right now. His faithfulness is that he is going to discipline the very people that claim him as their God because they have run astray. You see, the question is, if God is going to judge Israel, if God is going to purify them, how is he going to do that? And the rest of Isaiah, between chapters 1 and chapter 10, where we pick up, God announces that his his way of judging Israel is for him to let go, as in to pull his hand back and to allow the conquering nations that surround them to enter into Israel and enslave Israel. As a matter of fact, the Assyrian Empire is going to beat Israel within an inch of its life. God is going to say, if you want to see what it's like to be a part of them, then by all means, have at it. 
Can you imagine what it would be like then to be an Israelite at this time to think that, oh, God's with us. God, the, the Lord, he is my Lord. He's the God of God. Oh, but oh no, I'm in captivity. I'm in slavery. I am oppressed. I am marginalized. What is happening here? And then God shows up and says, the reason why this is happening is because you have been unfaithful and I'm teaching you. I am teaching you that I am the Lord. That, that is their perspective. And then we get what we get in chapter 10. So let's come back to chapter 10, starting at verse 33. It says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. Let's just take a moment really quick here to look at a title that God uses to describe himself. If you're paying attention, this is actually the second time that we've seen this title in this message, that God identifies himself as the Lord of hosts. You know, I've gone to Bible college, and for some reason this title has escaped me, and it wasn't until like a week ago when I was reaching, reading through this that I finally understood what the Lord of hosts means. It is a terrifying, it is a terrifying title. Because it's not like hosts, as in like when you go to Applebee's, someone greets you and then shows you to the table. It's not like a host, as in like, oh, I'm going to show you hospitality. It is referring to the heavenly hosts, as in the armies of heaven. The angelic beings, that God is a warrior king. And he leads the heavenly armies and they are at his disposal. That is why when it says, behold, the Lord of God, and earlier it says the mighty one, it will lop the bowels with terrifying power. I think especially as New Testament Christians, as we live on this side of the cross, we often forget how dangerous our God really is. That oftentimes that when we celebrate Jesus, we think about him on, on a manger, in a manger and on the cross and this wonderful, gentle shepherd. And that is an aspect of Jesus. But we forget that in the Old Testament, God revealed himself as fire, as a warrior, as a God who was not meant to be trifled with. If you're familiar with like, the Chronicles of Narnia, there's an amazing example of this. Right? If, if, if you've never read the books or watched the movie, there's a big lion that represents God. His name is Aslan. And in that story, the, Lucy, the, one of the, the smallest kids, asks the beaver, because there's talking animals in this, <laughs> you, you need to watch it. Good, buddy. <laughs> Lucy asks Mr. Beaver, is Aslan safe? And remember, in this narrative, Aslan represents God. And the beaver smiles and laughs and chuckles to himself and says, oh no, Lucy. Aslan is not safe. A lion is not safe. But he is good. We are a people who worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
And just like Israel at times, I think we can get a little too comfortable with grace and mercy, forgetting that this cosmic being of the universe, like beyond the universe, is a terrifying and wondrous God. But yet, in that, we can have hope because that is our God, that is our Christ, and Christ is our hope because he is mighty. You see, in this instance, when they were realizing that God, they, can ha- they can hope in his might, this instance in verse 33, God isn't talking about his might being used against the Israelites anymore, but they are familiar with it. Earlier in chapter 1, God called himself the Lord of hosts, the mighty one who will judge Israel. So they've been on the receiving end and they full on understand what it means to be an enemy of God. Well, that same strength, that same might, now God is saying that is on your side because you have finally aligned yourself with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that same might will go to battle for you. You see, in verse 34, it paints this picture where it says, He, God, He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. The Bible paints this picture that we are so familiar with here in the Pacific Northwest of just this amazing forest full of mighty trees. And in this metaphor, these trees represent the nations, the governments, all the things, all the great nations of the world. And God is saying, I will lay waste to every single one. I will clear cut this entire forest. That every nation that sees itself to be so great, so high, so lofty, will be brought to ruins. Why? Because he is a mighty God. And he and he alone deserves the credit, deserves the awe, deserves the glory. And for the Israelites to look at this, they would see that their great oppressors, their enslavers, would fall because of his might. But it goes on. What I love about this is that that's how chapter 10 ends. Then there's a space here. And this isn't that, that, was some, that was put there by, like, monks, right, later. Because the addresses that we have in the Bible are not originally part of the Bible. That's just something that some, some guys who were bored put it together. Actually, it's a very majestic and good thing. But uh, it goes on in chapter 11. It's almost like a movie that changes to a scene from the forest, and it zooms in onto a single stump. And that's where we get the rod of Jesse. In verse 11, sorry, chapter 11, verse 1, The Bible says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We need to remember that Israel is going through judgment, that they are also being laid to waste, that they have been cut down. But not only are they being cut down, all of the other nations are being cut down. But now we see that the stump of Jesse will come up a shoot, a rod, a branch will come and start to grow. And for the ancient Israelites, they saw this as the establishment 
of the Messiah and his kingdom. That they realize that this, this was the moment they, they, they would see their people be restored, that they would be under the rule and the authority and the governing of the Messiah, who would rule with justice and righteousness, that they would be great peace. As the, actually, the passage goes on to say that like children will hang out with snakes and they won't get hurt, that lions will lay down, lay down with lambs, that there's going to be this great peace and prosperity. And Israel, understanding the oppression that they've gone through, will look towards the future and they would know that God in his faithfulness, because they have, God has been acting upon them, will act for them and they can trust. For them, they would realize that their hope is found in God because they could, they could trust in God because their hope, Christ, is, Christ would be their hope because he has been in control this whole time. The entire time, God has been in control from their discipline, from their deliverance to their restoration. They can hope in the Messiah, in Christ, because he is in control. And all of this, everything that is happening is being brought out for their good. The original audience of this would see this and they would rejoice and they would know that in the future they would be a people restored. But what about us? We're not ancient Israelites. Last time I checked, many of us were not Jewish. Well, what's amazing about this line of thinking is that this thought process continues on actually into the New Testament, that Paul picks this up and shares something beyond this. He shares in Romans chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, he says, he actually quotes this passage from the Septuagint. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope. That the Messiah, once this Messiah is established, that all nations, not just the nation of Israel, but all nations will look to the rod of Jesse, the root of Jesse, and fall under his lordship. And because of the knowledge of God, they will rejoice and be blessed because they will come under his reign and his rule. That the Gentiles, us, <laughs> we can hope to the reign and the rule of Christ. Because he didn't come for just Israel. He came through all humanity. And then Paul caps it with verse 13 with something that's challenging. Verse 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing So that, by, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. My friends, my family, if you, if you have been saved by Christ, if you have been washed 
in the blood. The call for us as believers is for us to abound in hope. That this God who lays waste, who is mighty, who is faithful, who is in control, he is for his glory and for your good. And you know what? God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. To think about the fact that our God is mighty and strong and in control brings a whole new insight to the idea that if God is for us, who can be against us? But yet verse 13 is still very challenging because we are called by the God of hope to be filled with joy and peace and believing and abound in hope. And can we just Take a minute and admit that is not us 100% of the time. As a matter of fact, right now, you may be dealing with some hardships in your life. That maybe you, you know in your mind that God is God and that Jesus is out there and that he means for good for me, but yet in the reality I live, it is really hard for me to believe that things could be better. That's a very real situation, is it not? I think most of you, if you, if you know me, I, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't say I try to be optimistic. I think I am optimistic. You, if you know me, I'm very like, <laughs> like a jolly, jolly guy. Did you like that? <laughs> and maybe you're tired of hearing this. I know my roommates are, but this year has been really hard for me. As I had my own back injury, as I herniated three discs, as I went through weeks with only getting like maybe two or three hours of sleep, there were moments of my life where I sat there and I thought, okay, God, I know you're in control. I know you are real. I know you're doing something, but man, life right now is incredibly miserable. Like, have you ever, like, imagine just being in constant pain and just being numb from the waist down and only sleeping maybe 15, 20 minutes every, like, 40 hours. You are just a hollow husk of yourself. It's really hard to be hopeful in that moment, because all I can think about is just the pain and the discomfort of that. And yet, in the midst of that, and I remember, I remember a night where I was just really at the end of myself, wondering what God was doing. And in many ways, if you were to ask me, I would have been like, oh no, God's good. <laughs> but in my heart, I've been like, dude, Lord, what are you doing? Like, can we find some answers here? And I remember like, it was like two or three o'clock in the morning, just in my little wheelchair, not finding a comfortable place to sleep and deciding I need to figure something out that I, stupid me, because my brain is not working. I tried to get up out of the chair and instantly fell and hit my head on the couch. And as I lay there, a hollow husk of myself, weeping to myself, just mad at the world, mad at God, mad at so many things. My brother wakes up, comes out, sees what's happening, doesn't say anything to me, 
but it says, kneels beside me, places his hand on my shoulder, and just starts to pray. That is a big deal for me. Because my brother and I, as though we are, in many ways, best friends, that was a level of intimacy that I had never seen before in him that let me know what God was doing in his life. And in that moment, I felt, man, I would not have seen this if I was not living in my own personal hell at the moment. Now, now, that's one way to view the hardships of our lives, right? We teach that often, especially when we look at the story of Job, because oftentimes people will think to themselves, well, you know, Job went through hard things because we live in a broken world. Job, the book of Job is his friends coming over and over again saying, Job, you're going through all these bad things because you're done messed up, that God is chastening you, God is disciplining you, something is bad in your life, you need to stop. And Job's like, no. And we teach that often. We often teach that, that, you know what? We live in a broken world when negative things happen. Man, they just happen because sin is a real thing. But you know what? Jesus died on the cross and overcame sins. We have hope in that. And that's a true thing. But today we need to look at the other side of the story, the other side of the coin. Israel had bad things happen to it. It wasn't mainly because the world is just broken, though it is. Israel went through a time of some discipline because they were a people who claimed God but did not honor God. And in his love, in his love, God disciplined them. God disciplined them. So listen, if you're struggling with something right now, I, I really hope that you didn't hear me just say, your life is terrible because you're done messed up. Because that's not at all what I'm trying to say. But we can't escape the possibility especially as I work with people in their 30s and 40s who are so upset about life right now, that maybe the reason why your life is the way it is is because God has been trying to discipline, because he is faithful. He's been trying to discipline you over and over again, and you're not getting the lesson. Instead, just like Israel, you're adopting the practices and the principles of the world around us, and you're trying to draw a silver lining. That's why you have a hard time hoping now. Because you don't realize it, but you've placed your hope in something that won't last. And that's why it's hard to believe. And yet the entire time, God is saying, trust me, honor me, honor me, and I will show you life everlasting. You know, as we bring this to a close, I want to share with you this, this idea. King David wrote in Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8, he wrote, 
Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of our Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope because even when you have been unfaithful, Christ still comes after you. Christ is our hope because even though this world is hard, he has already overcome. Christ is our hope because when you gave your life to Jesus, when he saved you, he owned you now. He owns you now. You don't have free will after this. And his, his will will come to pass. We have hope because our God, who is a very, very, very dangerous God, our God is good. So friends, my hope and my prayer for you is just simply this. I pray that we would have repentant hearts. Repentance is a gift. And the truth is, when we finally turn back to God, when we see where we have adopted the ways of the world and we abandon those and adopt God, he is faithful. So I hope that if you are struggling in this, in this season, listen, you're not alone. We're there with you. But I want to challenge you to look to our God because he's in control. Whatever tragedies we're facing in our lives, God didn't just like look away and then look back and like, oh, no. He's been there the whole time. Let hope be the anthem of our souls. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, that though we are sinners, though we claim you to be our God, though we claim so many things and we put ourselves in situations where it's hard to believe because we hurt ourselves over and over again, Lord, that you, you never stop coming after us, Lord, that you are the good shepherd. Lord, that you, Father, are always calling us closer, calling us back to you, your heart and your ways. Father, I pray for my brothers, my sisters, my family. Father, I pray that as we look at this, Lord, that we would be encouraged to know, Lord, that you are a good God who comes after us, Lord, that we can hope in you. I pray, Father, that you would give us repentant hearts, that would turn to you in situations, Lord, and that you would open our eyes to see what it is that you are doing so that we may rest in you. Lord, be glorified. In your name I pray. Amen.